Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today's conversation revolves around God and football. And we'll be taking a look at the Supreme Court's most recent case on religion in the public schools, Kennedy v. Bremerton. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by a First Amendment scholar and a legal historian and someone who I think will be perfect for today's conversation. Sarah Berenger gordon is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. Sarah, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me, Joel. Today we'll be talking about religion, the First Amendment, and all within the context of football. Why don't we jump into the case to start things off? This is Kennedy v. Bremerton. Kennedy, not to be confused with the former Justice Kennedy, uh, but Kennedy here was a a football coach. Right. So uh, Kennedy was a football coach in the high school uh, in Bremerton, Washington, Um, And like many, many other coaches, he prayed with his team. And this has become a constant truth about football teams and football coaches and a constant problem uh, for the legal system. There's a few aspects of the First Amendment that that can touch on religious liberty, but the two that that mention it directly uh, are the Establishment Clause and the free exercise clause. So those here are perhaps in tension. Well, that's a that's a great question and one that's debated over time and between the current justices. And it's fair to say that the religion clauses and and the First Amendment starts by saying Congress shall enact no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that's the beginning of the Bill of Rights. That's the very first sentence. Yeah. Here we're talking about Washington State and a public school district disciplining a coach. Maybe we can jump back into the facts. Kennedy here is claiming that he was fired for praying privately. Right. So so there are a number of facts that are disputed in the case and as between the majority and the dissent in the case. But after Kennedy was hired and had worked with the football team for several years, he discontinued the practice of uh, prayer in the locker room and began to focus more on prayer at midfield. And the incident in particular that became the heart of the case was silent prayer at midfield after the game was over and when players were not on the field, certainly not playing, um, both the coach and players from the opposing team joined the prayer. There's a photograph in the descent of this very crowded midfield. You really can't even see Kennedy. There are so many people gathered around him. He's a little blue spot in the center of the photo. Um, and so partly the question becomes, what counts as private? And does the, the fact- picture certainly doesn't suggest that it was <laughs> was our normal definition of private. Right. And the fact that Kennedy wasn't speaking, is that the only thing? So, for example, we see those classic photographs of Tim Tebow kneeling before NFL games. We understand that he's praying. Is is part of the prayer, the posture and the place and the participants. Um, And there's deep disagreement about that. Right. You mentioned that the facts were contested. And I know that, you know, this was one of the last cases that Justice Breyer heard, and in his questions during oral argument, he sort of suggested maybe this is really just a a dispute about facts. Certainly, if you look at it carefully, the court disagrees not only on whether privacy was present, but whether this was a deeply, deeply public act. And so Um, Does the number of people make a difference? Does the amount of sound make a difference? Um, These are things that each side painted uh, in drastically different colors. 
We'll get into the arguments shortly, but on the facts side, one of the areas where it seemed like there was some disagreement was Paul Clement for, you know, arguing on behalf of Coach Kennedy seemed to suggest that he was the one willing to accommodate. And and on the other side, um, the argument was, no, he, the school was happy to accommodate his prayers. They said they'd <laughs> let him pray in the school or, or anywhere privately, but uh, Coach Kennedy was unwilling to um, was unwilling to engage on that. So it seemed like there were some some factual issues, either unresolved or or in dispute. Yes, I, you're absolutely right. And this is where the sort of media circus uh, involving uh, this case and others um, attracted a lot of attention. As soon as Kennedy lawyered up and got taken on by a client, um, the First Liberty Institute, a very um, conservative group took him on and represented him as their client. Immediately, notifications went out to the media. And that's not meant to, or not meant only to criticize Kennedy. These cases have become, um, I was going to use the word footballs, but I, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Two on the nose. Right. Uh, these cases have become um, vectors for accusations back and forth and um, news conferences and great fundraising opportunities and so on. And this case really is no exception. Um, in fact, it's smack in the middle of all that. I could certainly see that as a criticism, also perhaps in embracing the reality of what it takes to to win these days or what it takes to to create a movement out of a day-to-day dispute at a school district. Right. And so there are now, you know, at least a dozen organizations that litigate on the conservative side of religious freedom or religious liberty, however you want to describe it. Um, And at least a dozen on the other side jumping up and down and saying separation of church and state and so on. So it it has become really a cottage industry among lawyers. Um, I don't mean to imply that that's recreational, that people don't really care. I think they do. Right. And maybe we can touch on where things stood before the case. This had been dismissed on summary judgment at the district court, and then that was upheld by the Ninth Circuit? Yes. Yes. And then appealed to the Supreme Court, which denied cert. This has been, this had been rumbling around for six years, um, or five and a half, really. I think it started in October 2016. Yeah, that was interesting. So they were denied cert, but in the cert denial, four of the Justices who were ultimately in the majority, uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito, and Thomas basically said, no, no, we actually want to hear this. So right. was it the addition of Amy Coney Barrett to the court that 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 got us this case? <laughs> um, I think the justices have been signaling they were interested in visiting a case like this, even not even if not just precisely this case. Uh, for quite a while, um, and cases leading up to it, in, including a case called Trinity Lutheran, um, others, um, uh, and and the Carson against Macon. I mean, it's it's been in the background, at least, and in, in the foreground, exactly what constitutes prayer that should still be prohibited in a public education setting. Well, why don't we get into the law, and I guess we'll discuss... Maybe with you know, trying to keep a couple of things in our brains, I don't know if I'll be able to, I'm, I'm, I don't have your, your pedigree, but there's the law before the case, there's the law as argued by Kennedy and his team, and then there's the dissent slash the arguments made by the school district's lawyers. So should we start with, how would you like to start? Should we start with what was the law prior or? I think. You know, either way, we have to get into a bit of what the law was, um, because certainly that's what the dissent is jumping up and down and yelling about. I do think it's worth noting that Washington state had been pushing the envelope for decades. There's a case called Locke against 
Davey um, uh, from the early 2000s. Um, and in one of the final opinions he wrote, Chief Justice Rehnquist held that Washington state could deny a scholarship to an otherwise qualified student who wanted to use the scholarship to study for the ministry. And Washington state said, we take our establishment clause really seriously. And we have decided that under our establishment clause, this is required. So one of the things to think about is whether, and and you raised it at the beginning, is the free exercise clause in tension with the establishment clause? If Kennedy has a free exercise right to engage in silent private prayer, we realize that's contested, but silent private prayer at the end of a football game, at midfield, does that mean that Washington State's Establishment Clause can't be as broad as they thought it was? Certainly that came up in the dissent frequently reference to that case. So, so that's one bit of background. The other is my particular favorite, which is God and football. <laughs> and God and football go way back. Centuries, right, Professor? Yeah, I think his, well, God goes back a lot longer than football. But uh, football began to become much more popular in the mid-1950s. And really, that was part of this sort of explosion of a focus on having children be educated through high school after World War II. The emphasis on not stopping at eighth grade, but going through high school. And in many ways, football was a great way to keep otherwise, how can I say, unfocused 16 and 17-year-old young men on staying in school because football was so much fun for them. So much fun. Um, And so really at the same time that we begin seeing football enter high school curricula, we see the Pledge of Allegiance changed to include under God. 1954, and the formation of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, also 1954. And I know you're familiar with um, some of that through your sports career right? As, as a student athlete. For the viewers, I made some confessions in our prep call that, you know, in my high school, the Fellowship for Christian Athletes, actually in my middle school, it was almost ubiquitous that nearly every student was a member. There was very little non-overlap. Right. So so one of the things that we need to remember constantly in an era where people complain about the banning of school prayer and the banning of the Pledge of Allegiance is constant resistance to those bans, but also low-level participation, as, for example, at at your middle and high school um, when you were a a student athlete. And it can really affect people. It it really can. Um, And and so one of the things to note um, in the the football, the prayer and football case in the early 2000s um, was that it involved, of course, Friday Night Lights, Texas (laughs) prayer. This is the Santa Fe case? Yes, it is. Santa Fe, Texas, not Santa Fe, New Mexico and involved four families, one of which was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known popularly as the Mormon Church. The case is called Santa Fe against Doe because they received so many threats when they complained about overtly evangelical Christian prayer. So these are hard-fought issues. They're hard-fought especially in football, and I've seen it time and again, even at my own university, which is a member of the Ivy League Go Quakers, right? Yeah, and maybe, maybe now's a good time to touch on, I guess, some of the some of the interests involved. Maybe if I could characterize them, what the sides are fighting for, sort of humanize them. And let me know if you if I'm if I'm doing it properly. So on the Kennedy side, on the coaches scale, I suppose, they're arguing that look, this is a, an individual's right to practice his or her religion how they see fit and without the state unfairly discriminating against him. So this coach, he thinks that it's it's very important to, to pray after games. Maybe at some point he mentioned that it's good for the students. 
whether or not he was still encouraging the students, he still thinks it's important for him. He should have that ability to pray. And then on the other side, it's it's a combination. It's one, is this establishing, is this government establishing religion? Or is it some type of coercion where, you know, maybe even if it's not the government saying, or the school saying, you know, this is our favorite religion, so we're going to make a Christian prayer. It's, hey, look, we all want playing time. So if you come and join the coach at midfield, maybe he'll look more favorably about starting you on the offensive line or or giving you that receiver position that is so competitive. Right. No, and we all, all of us who are high school and college athletes remember how important the coach is to on the bench or out there whacking someone else. Right. So, so I think that's a really good point. The other thing I'd want to emphasize is how many athletes feel that their participation is sanctified. It means more. The game means more. It has a transcendent meaning. Mm. This is where you're going with, with some of that, some of the conversations you'd had with football players where, you know, the, the religious aspect was actually core to their sports experience. Very, very important and, and connected to patriotism as well, that God smiles on this country, one nation under God, and asking for God's blessing in this sporting endeavor is very important to many coaches and many athletes. Is it constitutional? <laughs> That's what we'll talk about today. <laughs> So would now be a good time to jump into the, the constitutional doctrine? You know, what does, the, what does this, the First Amendment and the Supreme Court have to say? Yes, and you're absolutely right. You use the word coercion, force, pressure that's so powerful that someone feels they don't have a choice, or maybe a temptation that is so alluring, like you get to sit next to the coach and maybe can say, I really see how this other play would work in such a situation. So, so if there's such pressure that choice is effectively undermined, then that counts as coercion. And here we get into some of the touchy-feely stuff, you know, and an opinion by Justice Kennedy. <laughs> Not Coach Kennedy. Right. Or such as predecessor, Kennedy said there's extraordinary psychological pressure on a middle school graduate to attend her graduation ceremony. And when the graduation ceremony was opened with prayer, she was perforce subjected to the prayer. And that's unconstitutional. That's a psychological pressure, not coercion as we usually think of it someone holding your arm you know twisting your arm behind your back or threatening to fire you and um, so the the question of where coercion lies is very important in this opinion especially for such as um discussion because he really emphasizes coercion as the heart of the establishment clause that if it's not coerced there's probably not a violation. And so if you could think of your 12-year-old kid, you know, lacing up his boots to play or, you know, soccer, is that, do I remember you played soccer? I uh, did. I played soccer as a yeah. high schooler and middle schooler. And three quarters of the kids say, we're leaving to go pray with the coach. Will your kid feel isolated? Is that coercive? Um, I think there's real debate about that, um, and I, I could see different ways of approaching it. Um, but there is, there really is an element in football that that the symbols of pregame and postgame activity are very important. Remember Colin Kaepernick, for example, taking a knee. But there's a big difference between what NFL players. <laughs> can do in a private league of, of millionaires and, and billionaires and what we permit in public schools. And here, I think we'll be talking about it both within the context of football, but also the way that this particular litigant was a coach. He's an employee of a public school. Oh, yes. That's a really good point. And one that the majority and dissent fought over 
<laughs> was he really on his own own time, or was he, you know, if he saw a fight breaking out at midfield, was he obligated to go deal with it? And I think each has a point. He would have been allowed to home yeah. to tell his family that he'd be home in an hour, but he also was on duty if something called. So are there reasonable disagreements in prior iterations of the Supreme Court? And I'm thinking here, especially of the Warren Court in the 1950s and 60s, and the Berger Court um, in the 1970s and 80s, they really said, you know, people in authority cannot be praying. They cannot teach people how to practice religion. This is not what public school is for. Go to church to learn how to practice religion. Education can include teaching about religion, but not a how-to handbook in how to do religion. You know, there's so much to unpack here. And, you know, listening to the oral arguments was an exercise uh, in keeping 12 different arguments in my head simultaneously because it seemed like the justices each wanted to recharacterize the argument as something different. Is this coercion? Is this establishment? Is this free speech? Should we start perhaps with speech? Is prayer, is that a protected speech? And if not, what's the test, I suppose? Right. So one of the issues um, is that, of course, prayer is expression, and speech has been held to include all kinds of expression, film, audio, portraits, so on. So, of course, prayer is a form of expression, an unusually deep and uh, powerful one for many people, Um, but it is also speech. Um, And the government uh, generally um, because the Freedom of Speech Clause has also been incorporated in the in the 20th century, governments are forbidden to ban speech based just on their content. So if you're just not allowing Coach Kennedy to kneel at midfield because you know he's praying silently, then you know, in his own time, and he's acting as a private citizen, then you're trying to interfere with his own expression. If, on the other hand, he's acting as a government employee and engaging in indirect but powerful coercion that attracts um, not only um, students and coaches from his own school district, but from others as well, and eventually national attention, right? Um, he could be held to be violating the mandate not to inject a particular religion into public education. Here, I thought, you know, the examples, you know, some of them were from Justice Sotomayor. I think Gorsuch had some really interesting examples, Justice Gorsuch as well. Distinguishing, is it okay if he's praying after the game, after perhaps the players have left the field? Or is it okay if he's praying halfway through the game when, you know, the players are on the field? Where do you see the line drawn, I guess, by this court or or prior courts? That's such an interesting set of questions. I have to say that, you know, similar questions have come up with the Ten Commandments, for example. You know, is it okay to have the Ten Commandments um, in a courtroom? Probably not. Is it okay to have the Ten Commandments on the outside of a building that was built in 1925? Probably yes. And it drives people crazy. You know, how do you figure out these fine distinctions between what's okay and what isn't? Um, And this illustrates, I think, the weakness of the law of religion, the constitutional law of religion in the United States. We don't even have a definition of religion for legal purposes. So, yeah. And, you know, I I thought this was (laughs) pointed out by one of the questions, which was uh, I'm not I can't remember who who was raising it. But in the oral arguments, there was a question. What if Nazism was determined to be a religion and the coach wanted to walk out to half field with his Nazi emblem emblazed on his jacket and Clement 
seem to say, well, that first, that's not a religion, but if it was, then perhaps I, I don't, maybe I'm going on a tangent here. No, no, it's a really good one because one of the things that's changed a great deal over the last 250 years is religious life. And what we think of as religion, um, so for example, in the early 20th century, conscientious objection was only allowed for members of peace churches who believed in God. So Quakers, <laughs> Mennonites, um, but a very small group. And as, um, as questions of selective service continued, it became evident that just believing in God uh, you know, that can't be a key element of religious life, given the number of respected um, religious practitioners who don't believe in anything like a supreme being. Yeah, like many forms of Buddhism. And many secular humanists are also classified as religious practitioners, have sacred, you know, um, ceremonies and so on, the Ethical Cultural Society. I, I mean, we could, we could go on. So one of the things that is most difficult is that religious life is very important. Um, religious affiliations have gone down significantly, so fewer and fewer people go to church or temple or synagogue or mosque. Um, and yet the numbers of those who believe themselves, who describe themselves as deeply spiritually engaged are very, very high. So do those people have no religious interests because they don't belong to a given um, a given denomination, that can't be right. Yeah, that just can't be. A religion of one is what we lawyers would, would you know, argue to protect. So defining religion may, in fact, be impossible. The whole field of religious studies grew out of the Supreme Court cases that banned prayer in schools. <laughs> and even religious studies departments do not have a working uh, definition of religion. So it may not be practical. It may just be too hard fought and too fast changing. Uh, but that does mean that it's hard to draw clear lines around it. Professor, you mentioned some of the precedent on on the free speech in schools. Would it be worthwhile to talk about the Tinker case and whether that had any apl application here? Sure, yes, that came up on both sides. Tinker against Des Moines involved um, some black armbands um, worn by students to school uh, to protest um, a violence, um, uh, violence suppression of Vietnam War protesters. Um, so it came, I think it's a 1968 case or thereabouts, you hold me to it exactly. Um, but what the court said there is you don't actually park all your constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door. Um, and that's true for other what we call total institutions, the military, prison, for example. Uh, you may have your rights um, uh, sharply limited. Uh, students and parents do not have the right not to educate their children. I'm sure those of us who have kids screaming about how they don't want to go to school as you load them onto the school bus sort of saying, but the governor makes you go, you know, <laughs> putting it right. Wow. Um, it must be, uh, you know, a particular challenge to have a mother who's uh, <laughs> such a, a renowned uh, legal scholar who can point I out, well, whatever you want doesn't matter. You're going because the law says so. <laughs> my kids were not impressed at all. They they just weren't impressed at all. And, um, you know, I used to try to tell them they'd sign contracts to brush their teeth, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So um, I would say that one of the things that is um, most noted and really worth emphasizing is that by going to school, students are not stripped of all their rights, but they are required to go to school and they're required not to, you know, bring knives in or beat each other, you know. Uh, but yes, they are substantially constrained, but not entirely. The analogy here would be that Coach Kennedy, he doesn't park his his religious liberties in the parking lot before he gets onto the, the practice field. And if he has a sincerely held religious belief that he should be praying, then perhaps he, he should be permitted 
what would be the test that the the court would apply to analyzing that? Yeah, that's exactly the question. So how much freedom does a teacher or a coach have when they get to the high school? That's limited too, but it's not non-existent. And the court in the in the Kennedy against Bremerton case stressed private time, silent prayer. So it was it was deciding a very narrow description of protected prayer, according to the majority. Of course, the dissent said this just unleashes everything, right? Uh, And and some people have really overreacted. I got a a call from a reporter saying, you know, now schools would do nothing but pray all day. And and, um, so I do think that one of the issues that the court wrestled with here was whether Kennedy counted as a private person at the time that he prayed, and did the fact that he did not pray out loud make a difference? So we ha- we went through this um, for decades in uh, Supreme Court case law. Is a moment of silence okay? And the answer is usually yes. At the beginning of the school day, if the school wants to start with a moment of silence, that's okay. As long as they don't say, so that you pray. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So silence may be relevant here. Although, as I mentioned earlier, I think that knees <laughs> and the bended head, you know, is kind of a giveaway. Well, I don't know. You could argue that, you know, the, the gesture is taken on a, a broader context now with people taking a knee against discrimination or, or taking a knee against police brutality. Yes, yes. Back to Colin Kaepernick, right? Football breeds more reference to football. Breeds so. <laughs> Lucky us. Um, but but I, I, I do think that's right um, and that we have to be able to discern some boundaries. It's just incredibly difficult. And I think this Supreme Court is really trying to make the free exercise, certainly, um, the law of religious liberty, much clearer. And it's hard. It's really hard. As you saw in this case, it's it's difficult figuring this out because the case itself has lots of facts and sort of designing some elegant rule that addresses future situations was beyond the majority. I think, you know, to keep a majority required narrow ground the facts of the case. On the speech issue, uh, it was definitely brought up a lot in oral arguments, and I'm curious where we are today. The question around what about wearing religious paraphernalia? Mm. Could a teacher be dismissed for wearing a crucifix that was visible to students or wearing a religious turban? Uh, Those have been looked at and, and widely deemed to be fine. Uh, Why is that? One of the things that has come up is that um, many gangs have religious symbols, and so students wearing um, religious uh, articles to school can be some kind of substitute or some kind of dog whistle to gang life. Um, So it goes beyond teachers. Um, And I think if if a teacher was too overt about it. Obviously, a headscarf is a message, but one of modesty. So so the classic was nuns' habits at the turn right. of the 20th century um, uh, and um, public school teaching in full regalia was uh, banned, for example, in Pennsylvania. Okay, so a nun's habit might be is well, is a step yeah. too far? Maybe the full burqa with the eye slit might, might be, be hard. Although it's certainly in um, in the U.S. critiques of the French rules. Yeah, the the French rules. I was actually thinking about in you know in contrast, where there's a strict block on any clothes that suggest or could identify religious affiliation, whether that's you know, a a crucifix or a Star of David, or as you mentioned, even a headscarf. Even a headscarf, a yarmulke? Sure. Not just the burqa. Yes. And and I think a number of um, 
Americans uh, felt that's going too far, especially for children um, whose parents may require this of them. And then they get to school and told that their parents are wrong and don't know what they're talking about. So that's, again, you know, we talked about the... Um, the potential conflict between the establishment and free exercise clauses, the conflict between parents and government schools is also all over the place. And and intense. Into sex education, right? Right. <laughs> you, can imagine. right. you can imagine. But yes, religious um, paraphernalia, if a kid brings in his... Uh, favorite thing to do over winter break and it's a picture of a christmas tree with santa is that a problem probably not yeah i mean so so these things they're all over the place and and especially because the law is messy it encourages just the kind of questions you're asking like where are the boundaries and when we're not sure where the boundaries are we encourage people to come to court to try to figure it out. Maybe the Constitution will protect them. Professor, while we're talking about First Amendment, there was a recent case in Boston, or that came out of Boston. What happened in the Shirtleft case, and what, what are we supposed to take out of that? And then after, maybe we can apply it to Kennedy. Exactly. So Earl Shirtleft, um was a leader of Constitution Camp from New Hampshire. And he was planning a parade in Boston, um, and uh, he asked the city of Boston to fly its uh, his flag, the organization's flag, on one of three um, flagpoles outside Boston City Hall. Um, it was a flag that is well known among evangelicals. It's a red cross on a blue field and a white background, and uh, and the event was to be a straight pride parade. Uh, and the, in their wisdom, uh, the fathers of the city of Boston decided that they could not fly the flag, that it sent a religious message, and that would uh, it would send the message to observers that Boston was a, endorsing the position of Shirtleff and his uh, fellow um, uh, paraders. Was it that the flag was overtly religious or was it some type of uh, more complicated nuanced thing that it was hey this is actually anti-gay rather than pro-heterosexual right i they had flown a rainbow flag for example um but really it became much more centered that the reason that the boston officials cited was that this is religious and we don't fly religious flags. Um, but it turned out that they'd never been asked whether or not they flew religious flags, and they'd never turned down anyone who asked to have a flag raised on that flagpole. And in light of that, the court, um, without dissent, but without perfect agreement on the majority opinion, um, found that this was not government speech. And therefore, um, since there had been so many different flags and some flags such as I think they uh, they had flown the flag of Portugal that includes religious symbols or Switzerland or, you know, if you, you if you flew the Jack, right, it's St. George's and St. Andrew's uh, flags. Presumably the argument was Look, if we're willing to fly the flag of Norway, that's a giant cross, and people aren't confused that we've become Norway, perhaps we can we can share this cross that's affiliated with an evangelical organization that's here for an event. Right, right, and 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 as I say, there was substantial agreement on that point. So here in the Kennedy case, the ultimate decision was that this was protected speech, uh, the, the decision um, that's now law. Uh, how did they come to that understanding? The majority was very careful to limit the case to its facts. Um, and, and often we see that because the author of the majority opinion needs to keep, you know, all those signers who are joining him needs to keep them in the fold, not straying perhaps to the side of a dissent. So 
one of the things that the court did was confine the case to limited terms. Um, and it said first that the prayer was silent um, and private, um, that, that Coach Kennedy was on non-employee time, um, that he was doing this after football games. He wasn't forcing anyone to join him. He was acting on his own sense of the um, solemnity of the game and its higher meaning. Um, and he said repeatedly that he would not have felt right. He would not have felt right with God. Did he not pray after the game? I mean, he was very public about that. He announced he was going to do it. I mean, he, in fact, announced it in media. It became something of a circus. Um, and so one of the central debates was, was this silent? Was this really private? And that's what the dissent emphasized on the other side of the coin. A quick pause for those listening for CLE credit. The code for this interview is 90101. Again, that's 90101. And now back to the interview. Part of this, again, do we have to remember that this was a case for summary judgment? And so when when any facts are, are in dispute, the court has to think of it in the way most favorable to the coach. Is that still relevant or is, or is that nothing to do with where the decision <laughs> came from? Well, so, so the facts in the case really are disputed um, and was cert, you know, improvidently granted, meaning should the court have waited longer, you saw that several justices um, wanted to hear it a couple of years earlier. I don't think it was going to get much clearer. I do think that that in this case, the question of whether the coach was in fact inflicting his views on other people, um, uh, it really is the central question. Yeah. And I don't think the case, as you you pointed out how messy it is at the edges. It's hard to figure out, you know, if it if it was in the locker room, if it was during game time, if it was before the students had left the field, if it wasn't silent, if nobody else was around, if the lights had been turned off, <laughs> all of these things really uh, were not decided by the court. So I think, and, and, and this is really a truism of the law of religion, which is that it has been turbulent since the middle of the 20th century and the, the religion clauses were incorporated and applied against the states. It's been controversial. It's been hard fought. It's been rewritten many times over. Um, and, and so leaving, um, leaving us once again with a certain sense of vertigo when we think about this area of law. I think what you pointed out is so important to the viewers. And I know we have viewers on both sides of the argument, some who probably would like more religious freedom when it comes to uh, allowing prayer, allowing student prayer, more freedom of expression from teachers. And then on the other side, I, I know that many would say, look, we, you know, schools just aren't the place for that at all. And none of this should be uh, encouraged or permitted. But here, I think where we end up is, well, the court is okay with what Kennedy did, as you mentioned, only on these limited factors. And well, come back and bother us again, when you want to take things one step further, because we're not getting into that. Yeah. Um, and that, as I, as I mentioned, you know, majority uh, decisions have to keep everyone, you know, on the farm, uh, all the, all the joiners. Um, and so there's lots of compromise. So one of the things that I think we see is that both sides of the equation view this as an era of significant change. Um, and for those on the conservative right wing, and if we care to classify it that bluntly, are, are really trying to revive the free exercise clause. Um, it was a, an opinion by Antonin Scalia in 1990 that really stripped the power of the free exercise clause. Um, and that helps explain why free speech comes up so much in these cases now, because uh, Scalia 
uh, held that um, just a free exercise claim alone um, without another constitutional interest, such as parental rights or freedom of speech, um, would not generally prevail against any kind of neutral decision on the law. So one of the things that has resulted from that decision was a real pullback um, by the Supreme Court on free exercise clause powers. Um, and, and this court, um, the Roberts Court, um, has shown itself to be very interested in rebuilding the free exercise clause um, and, and the jurisprudence that underlies it. The other side says you're killing the Establishment Clause. You've undermined all of separation of church and state. You've allowed the Free Exercise Clause to overwhelm the Establishment Clause, and that's very dangerous. So, I, you know, you can see both sides, and we are clearly in a position um, that that has these sides squaring off. So I don't fork... Well, let me just say, historians try not to predict the future. Everyone should try not to predict the future. It doesn't work very well. If we could do it well. On that note, Professor, can we get a prediction for yeah, the future? sure. <laughs> so I, I guess the only thing I would say is that there are lots of cases still bubbling up. And, and, and it would be interesting to see. So, for example, after the first school prayer case, in 1962, where the Supreme Court struck down a prayer composed by a group of ministers, priests, and rabbis that would be said by students every day, there was protest, lots of protest. Uh, and the next year, another case came up about involving Bible reading um, and reciting the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of the day. And a lot of people said, oh, you know, this isn't imposed by the government. Um, this is not written by the government. It's, you know, it's the Bible and it's the Lord's Prayer. It's, uh, and the Supreme Court, instead of walking it back, saying, yes, it was narrowly defined terms we were dealing with, they doubled down. And they said, you can't do that either. And, and that, you know, impeach Earl Warren signs went up all over the country. Yeah, I think it's important to note that, you know, these cases can be flashpoints for political movements that can follow. And even if we think of our nation being relatively, um, you know, to have a variety of opinions on religion and religious freedom, in these particular jurisdictions, often the prayer is incredibly popular. And, and so, you know, striking them down can be an unpopular decision. Not only an unpopular decision, but an unsuccessful one. Because they'll just keep doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, so so that the resistance to school prayer decisions, there have been a couple of studies. It's just all over the place. Um, uh, so so that's one thing to to factor in. Does it matter if a case is followed to the letter by the rest of the country? Maybe not. Um, does it matter if the court um, keeps alienating group after group after group, um, and uh, nobody seems to know quite what's going on and who's going to win what, um, that can get exhausting, and it can also get very mean-spirited. Well, I want to talk about something, a legacy of this case that that did make a change, or at least announce an official change. Let's talk about um, the lemon test. I want to know what is the lemon test? What was it? And then let's talk about its death. <laughs> it's reported death. It's purported death. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the lemon test, um, uh, sort of like the case I was talking about by Justice Scalia, a case written by a Republican, um, the lemon, uh, lemon against Kurtzman case, the majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Berger. And it's a, a, a three-part uh, test um, that requires any law to have a secular purpose. So if the legislature says, we really want to support um, 
the, the sisters of the Blessed Heart of Mary. So we're going to enact a multi-billion dollar fund that they can use. Um, that may not have a secular purpose unless the sisters of the Blessed Heart of Mary are also feeding the poor or something like that. So, right. so credible secular purpose. And second in the requirement is that it, its primary effect, meaning what it does most of the time, is does not um, infringe on, meaning make life worse for religion or promote religion. So it has, it has, uh, it, it's not targeting religion um, in its effect. That's the second of three prongs, I kid you not. And the third prong is that it not unduly entangle the government with religion. So if the grant to the Sisters of the Blessed Heart of Mary required government officials to spend full time overseeing the administration of the grant um, and sitting in on all kinds of religious services, you might see that as entangling government with religion. They might be spending too much time together. So that's the lemon test. And when he wrote that opinion, Berger saw it, and so did the rest of the world, as a summary of the case law over the past 15 years or so, that, that these aspects had been developed. And because the law was so messy and so out of control and cases just kept coming up, um, that this three-part test would be of use not only to the Supreme Court justices, but all those poor lower court judges who are having to try to follow the Supreme Court, figure out what the Supreme Court's doing. And Berger wasn't a lefty liberal judge. He was a, a Nixon appointee. He was a Nixon appointee. Absolutely. A card carrying Republican, not a radical left. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so one of the things that we see, for example, is that how much things have changed over the last 50 years as that case involved funding for public schools. And really, states and the Supreme Court have figured their way around those rules. Instead of sending, um, sending those millions of dollars right to the religious organization, they send it to parents and allow parents to choose where to change send their kids to school. And that indirection means that it's the parents' choice, not the government's. Um, and that has worked really well. That's That's been around for 25 years or so, that approach, and um, was just re-invoked in the Carson against Macon case, decided in June of 2022, held that it was um, not uh, constitutional for Maine um, to support um, uh, education, especially high school education, um, in districts that did not have their own public high schools by paying for private school education. Um, that's fine. But Maine, since about 1980, had not allowed that funding to go to religious schools. Clearly, in response to an opinion by the state attorney general, who had been reading all those cases like Lemon Against Kurtzman <laughs> that we talked about a moment ago that were about school funding. And in the in that case, the Supreme Court said, "Sorry, you you really, you can't discriminate against these religious schools." They did in part because it's the parents who choose. Not it's not the state sending funding um, directly to the schools, choosing the schools and sending it. It's the parents who choose. And the parents have the right to choose, and the state will pay the tuition to the school, but only at the behest of the parent. So the the lemon test, I mean, going back to lemon, what happened, what's changed in the last, I guess, 20 years? Lemon used to be the, the way to look at, at government, um, at, at rules that involved establishment, that involves um, free exercise. What changed? Well, do you remember those three prongs I talked about? Yeah. They're complicated and they're hard to square with each other. If you fail any of them, it violates the Constitution. So lots and lots of cases found violations of the Constitution um, under the Lemon Test. The other is that it's messy 
it's just really hard. I know you talked about keeping 12 arguments in your head, keeping three prongs of a test and, and the many cases that lie, you know, are involved in each of those three prongs. It's, it's hard and it requires a lot uh, by those involved in adjudicating them and those involved in arguing them. And the case became unpopular. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, remember her? First female justice on the court. Yes, indeed. Appointed by Ronald Reagan um, and very interested in the law of religion, um, said, listen, the real test should be whether or not government is endorsing religion. Is it sending a message to students that we value your religion more than the other students sitting over on the other side? Or if you don't belong to this religion, you know, you won't be included in things. Is it sending a message to citizens or students um, that the government is on one side or another? And that really became popular for a while and seemed to salvage um, the um, uh, the lemon test at some level. But Justice Kennedy hated it. And he had very good critiques of it. And of course, he decided, you know, the prayer case involving uh, the New York uh, uh, state town meeting Greece against Galloway and said, this really isn't a problem. Grownups are here. This isn't really, we're not sending special messages of endorsement. In fact, that test is a waste of time. Um, and so it's fair to say that both the lemon test as originally written and the endorsement test have become very unpopular, in part because the establishment clause in some people's eyes wound up overwhelming the free exercise clause. So this case, Kennedy v. Bremerton, does this end the lemon test? Does this end the endorsement test? And if so... Is it time to talk about the historical practices and understandings test? Yeah, as a historian, I feel, you know, I certainly have something to say about that. Um, and so I think the answer is generally yes. This case, although not totally overruled, is certainly in bad odor, is in a timeout box with a dunce cap on over in the corner. And uh, a number of scholars have been jumping up and down and saying, you know, you didn't even have the guts to overrule it. The dissent said the same thing. And there has been substantial support for overruling Lemon against Kurtzman. But some justices, I'm, I, I'm thinking of Barrett um, uh, to, here, say, what are we going to put in its place? I mean, it seemed like they had enough votes for historical practices and understandings. <laughs> yes. So one of the things that um, that honestly, I, you know, I, w I went through law school and I did a seminary degree at the same time and I went out and started practicing in the field. And I said, wait a minute, all of this, everybody just keeps saying, you know, we're going to go back to the founding fathers and do what they told us to do as though the founding as though that was yeah, yeah played football right and so so i it, 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 i wound up going and getting a phd in history to sort of figure out what's going on here and you know i have professional training in history and i can tell you history doesn't give you that kind of answer so it will need substantial working out cuz you know one thing that's fair to say is that you know, there are many different points of view as there are founders and the ratifying conventions, um, you know, uh, and those who ratified the Bill of Rights, right? So just, it's just incredibly complicated. And did the 14th Amendment change anything? Are those founders relevant? You know, those, that second post-Civil right, War constitution? Right, is that, is that history also thrown in or do we only look at, you know, around... 30, 40 years around the actual uh, ratification. So a lot of this debate centers around what lawyers call originalism. Of course, they have to give it an ism. Um, but what they mean is, what were the people who designed this law or designed this constitution? What were they thinking they were doing? And we then take what they did or didn't say and act on it. So if they didn't address, if they could have addressed but didn't, 
a given situation? Are we bound to to decide that they didn't have anything, any thoughts about it? Um, so, you know, it, it's really difficult. Should we be bound by, you know, 250-year-old words? Do they mean the same thing now? Has nothing changed in the interim? And it's a real question about our Constitution. Um, it has not been amended in more than 50 years at this point. This is, this is, a, uh, this is something that um, we really need to take cognizance of. What does our Constitution tell us? Do the people who built it and rebuilt it and argue about it today, do, do they think we have any clear idea of what history should tell us? And, um, and there, are, there are real coherent groups, thoughtful people. I'm thinking of law professors, history, I think Jill Lepore, Sandy Levinson, saying our Constitution has passed its best by date. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I'm not sure I agree, but it's certainly it's worth taking into account that if, if the best we have is what the founders actually thought about and said 250 years ago, before football was a game, for example, we need to live in the present. Well, is there a test? I mean, there's this historical traditions and understandings. This is the new test for religious freedom. Is there an actual step-by-step -step test if I was your student taking an exam and needed to explain it? <laughs> Such a great question because I I, I uh, definitely teach this area of the law and history keeps coming into it. Um, so one thing we've learned is that Thomas Jefferson got you a long way toward the goalpost, if I can bring football back in, um, in the 40s, 50s, and even the 60s. And then he started being criticized because he was such a skeptic himself. And James Madison became a lot more important um, it, you know, people are cherry picking the founders, if I could put it that way. And the other thing that, that from my perspective makes a difference is that we are not a new country. This is not new constitution. A lot has happened and we need to act as though we, a lot has happened and, and this is not a new country. We're not wet behind the ears. And yes, history is important. It tells us about wonderful and terrible things that have happened that still affect us. And um, so it's not that I want to say history is irrelevant. Uh, are, aren't you the, the president of the Historical Law Society? I don't think we would expect you to say history is irrelevant. <laughs> oh, good point. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think it's irrelevant. But I also don't think you just cut and paste. Um, and that that's lazy and and wrong, and we'll see how it works out. It's it, it has not produced stable outcomes in the past, and 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 at least from where I sit, it's not doing that now, and I don't see how it could. Professor, I guess before we let you go, any other insights on? on this Kennedy-Bremerton case, on what you see coming down from the Supreme Court next term, or where yeah. establishment rests now? I mean, do we have protections, or are we in one of these more extreme polls that both sides have seemed to go to after the Bremerton case was announced? No, those are great questions. I would say, yes, we do have an establishment clause, but it's limited to coercion. Um, and 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 that really is um, a an element that um, Justice Kennedy uh, thought should be the centerpiece of the establishment clause, um, and Gorsuch and others clearly do as well. Um, I'm not sure that will be very. I thought you protected. said Kennedy hated the the coercion test. He hated endorsement. Oh, oh, sorry. Let me, let me remove that dumb question. <laughs> not at all. So many multisyllabic words here. But so I think it's still there. I think it's in a more confined space. And traditionally, we've talked about the, the free exercise and establishment clauses as sometimes butting up against each other, sometimes um, uh, as having space between each other. The court traditionally used the phrase, the play in the joints between the clauses, which would allow actors to do or not do something that 
maybe they would consider violating the Establishment Clause but didn't violate the Free Exercise Clause, right? So so that, that there would be leeway between the two clauses. What we have seen is a vast, fast, fast and fast growth in free exercise jurisprudence and, and successful litigation by free exercise plaintiffs and very little happening on the establishment clause. One final note before before we let you go. I I want to return to first principles, back to God in football. Yeah. Professor, after the Kennedy v. Bremerton case, where does prayer in football sit? I mean, can can coaches pray? Can can student athletes pray? Uh, is prayer still is it still separate from from public <laughs> sports, or is it permitted under certain circumstances? So football is special. Always has been. Well, always, always in our lifetimes has been. Um, and prayer and football have not been absent in public education settings. They've been cheek by jowl for a long time. Um, I think they'll be even cozier, but I don't want to send the impression that the actual practice has been not to pray. I, I mean, I just think God and football have traveled together in many people's minds, players, coaches, spectators, and more. So it, it, the jurisprudence is important, but I'm not sure how much it changed the practice. You know, if it's private, if it's silent, then you should be fine? I think so. And I think we'll see more cases. I, you know, there are, uh, so this is narrow enough that it, it, it's going to encourage First Liberty Institute or other groups. Who backed uh, Coach Kennedy's uh, legal defense. They have more work. Well, it seemed like from the questions uh, at oral argument, the publicly led prayer in the huddle. You just mentioned that it is incredibly common and, you know, in practice it's out there, but it seems like the court wasn't, certainly wasn't willing to bless that. Yeah. I, I mean, to the extent we have coercion there, um, I, I think that's where litigants will go. Um, and, and we'll see how much that, you know, how much is left. Um, we talked about the middle school graduate who felt psychological pressure to go to her graduation. Um, I, you know, does coercion actually extend to something that indirect? And, and we'll learn. Professor Sarah Berenger Gordon teaches law at the University of Pennsylvania. Sarah, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation, and I think it'll be informative to our viewers. I've enjoyed it so much, and I've enjoyed your other talks on law, and I'm glad to be one of them. Wonderful to hear. Thank you. Thank you. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.